Welcome to Spotlight McCall, conversations with local luminaries on their inspiration, creativity, and vision. I'm Renee Silvas, and today we're sitting here with Bill Whitaker. I asked Bill to be on the podcast because he has these fascinating motorcycle trips across entire continents, and I want to hear about that today and the work you're doing right now with Crush the Curve. And when I asked Bill to give me a little bit of, of a biography, he adroitly eluded me. So we're going to wing it today. Some of you may know Bill from his years at Simplot. So let's just dive in. You know, I love it that you refuse to answer my questions about a biography. That To me, that suggests that you don't want to be pinned down by any one thing. You don't want to be limited by anything biographical. <laughs> you know, Renee, it's interesting to me that um, I don't want to live. It's kind of like, does that stuff really matter? And does where I come from, it's really, really important to me. You know, I, I almost like the um, feeling of been there and done that, and now I'm doing this. And in the future, I might be doing something else. So um, I think it works for me anyway. So I don't spend a lot of time on... Um, you know, resumes or right. CV type stuff. Well, just even your what you your passion now with your motorcycle. You want to get out there and experience the world now. What's happening in the moment? But let's go back a little bit. Tell us how you got to Idaho and a little bit about your Idaho background because you weren't born and raised here. Yeah, no, I was born and raised in Missouri, and actually, I've been um, texting this morning with a small group of friends. And we were joking about, I was raised where we noodled, we went underwater and caught catfish with our hands. And in Idaho, everybody here is used to fly fishing in Patagonia shirts. But I was raised in Missouri, grew up in a, in a small town, St. Joseph, Missouri, along the Missouri River. And we had a blast growing up as kids, but I was always drawn to the mountains, always drawn to being in the West, and particularly the Pacific Northwest. And somehow I got to Idaho. Um, there was a guy that was the CEO of the Simplot Company. His name Steve Beebe. And he called me one day and asked if I'd come out and go to work for the Simplot Company. And, and I remember, I thought, boy, what a big decision. And I took a little extra time making the choice to come out. And I remember one day he called and said, you know what, are you coming or not? And I did, and it's the best thing I've ever done. Wow. What in you answered that call that has this be your home now? First of all, I love Idaho. I love everything that Idaho stands for. And I love the experiences that I've had in, in Idaho, but I'm not even close to having all the experiences that I want to have in Idaho. Good thing you retired. Uh, yeah, I think, that's, I think that had a lot to do with why I went ahead and retired at the young age of 65 years old. I was 66, actually. Uh -huh. But the point is, coming to Idaho was like it was another chapter in a book. The next chapter in the books is I want to go live in the mountains, experience the mountains. I want to go try this. So it's been 20 years now. You know, I know I don't get to be a native, but I feel like a native at mm -hmm. this point. Mm -hmm. Idaho has been good to you. Yeah, it really has. And Couldn't be better. Of, that sense of adventure you have. The old Yvonne Chouinard quote was, uh, it's not an adventure until something goes wrong, or it's not an adventure unless it changes your life. You know, I seek out relative adventures. I'm, by relative, I mean everybody has a different level of what they determine as an adventure. Um, my adventures are really things that move me and that, they kind of get my soul. And Idaho does that for me. Soon, you know, in the next week or two, I'll take off and go on my motorcycle back in with a tent and a sleeping bag and on a jet boil, and I'll figure out a place that I haven't been in Idaho and camp and experience more of Idaho. And I think what's interesting to me is I not only I want to do it in Idaho, I want to do it in Wyoming or Montana or Oregon or wherever, but I also want to do it all over the world. You said something interesting just a moment ago, when something goes wrong. That's an edge for you. That's something, you don't, we don't really seek that out. You're good at wrangling that. Like that gets you a little excited. When something goes wrong, you get to play with that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think 
I think there's something about, again, there's different levels of living yeah. on the edge uh-huh. and, and everybody's uh, perspective of what that edge is, is their own personal, you know, thinking. And my own personal thinking is, is if something does go wrong and if, if it doesn't make sense to do it and you could do it and if you could have that experience or you could work out of what might go wrong, it's a pretty spectacular feeling. Um, I was planning on leaving next week and going to the Arctic Circle on my motorcycle because I have a bike setting in Germany right now, and I've been studying the Holocaust and, and all the uh, concentration camps. And I was also really interested in the post-World War II years and Stalin's march on Eastern Europe. But you put all that together, and I was planning on going to Eastern Europe go have this experience to really study what happened after World War II and probably until about 1992, but I can't go. The motorcycle stranded in Heidelberg, Germany, and uh, to some degree I felt a little stranded here. It's been somewhat insightful for me to stay at home for a couple of months. So taking the paradigm of what went wrong and working with it as an yeah, opportunity. exactly. How can I turn this into something? Some kind of value. And I'm still working on that, by the way. You I think bet you that's, always work on that. That's been an interesting curve for you to work with yourself. Right, it has been. What I did is actually even a month or six weeks ago, I started focusing on wouldn't it be cool to be at the Arctic Circle on my motorcycle from McCall, Idaho, on summer solstice? And wouldn't that be a special deal? So I start planning the trip. So I'm getting everything ready. I'm planning it. I'm getting organized, routing everything. I've got it all planned out. And How can but, you cross a continent the, but, from McCall? Right. But the border's closed. The Canadian-U.S. borders closed. Then oh. I find out that there's still possible that they'll have to have 14-day quarantine, so on and so forth. The, you can what, do that. You've got a tent. Yeah, yeah, I really do. But <laughs> a tent for 14 days in one location would be hard. But, but anyway, so I don't get to go. Okay. So your plans change. I'm not saying that I haven't been disappointed a little bit, but mm-hmm, in the big sure. scheme of things, my disappointment doesn't come close to measuring what the the anxiety that vulnerable people have for this virus. So it's pretty self-indulgent to think that I'm not going to get to be on the Arctic Circle on summer solstice with my motorcycle. You can so. do that next year. Uh, yeah, I'll do it sometime. And you'll get over to, to right. your Germany trip soon, right. eventually. Tell us how you got started on these adventures. I started in Missouri, and since we uh, lived on the Missouri River Bluffs, rode dirt bikes in the hills and, and along those river bluffs, and um, and it was always exciting to me. Of course, went through the Harley phase, and, and I had almost no interest in um, doing cross-country trips on a Harley, but I loved to go to the, uh, the bike nights or something like that with my friends. When I came to Idaho, I discovered the ability to go travel in the backcountry with motorcycles. And it's been probably 16 years ago I started doing this and uh, fell in love with it. So the Idaho mountain roads taught you getting on the back roads, right. the mountain roads. I could go places that first of all, that were pretty remote, that, you know, you could take a Jeep or something to most of them. Oh, on these back dirt roads. But back dirt roads. Oh, yeah. yeah. That, okay. This is important if you're going to go to Patagonia or Africa. Yeah, or... <laughs> yeah. You, you need to have that experience. So, so, okay. so I, I really got so that I couldn't wait to get to a weekend where I just go for a night or two. At that point, it was by myself. And today, you know, I still do a lot of stuff by myself. Traveling by yourself in the backcountry gives you a perspective. I mean, you get to digest everything around you a little bit easier than when you might have two or three people with you. It becomes contemplative. Yeah, exactly. Good Mm -hmm. word. Yeah. Yeah. You've thought of that word before. (laughs) I get it. I prefer traveling alone. You have the capacity and the space to take it all in without being distracted by a conversation or other people's needs. It's your experience. Yeah, and and Renee, I like traveling with small groups, and I like traveling alone, and it kind of depends on where we are. 
an example is traveling to Mexico. I like to be with a few other people because it just feels, you know, there's a little bit more security or safety, but it's also a little bit, you know, you, you learn to compromise a lot. And I remember you telling me once that you would separate from the group and choose a meeting point. Tell us about that structure you have of traveling. It's interesting as I just I just did the uh, Silk Road from Istanbul, Turkey to Xi'an, China. And we went through nine countries and as we went through those nine countries, uh, we didn't, I think there was, there was, there was eight of us and um, we didn't travel in a pack of eight. When we went along the Pamir Highway or along the border of Afghanistan or through Iran. That could be intimidating for people. Yeah, we didn't travel in a pack of eight. Right. First of all, you kind of wear this gear that you look like you're from space or something. And then you show up on big motorcycles mm -hmm. with dirt bike tires that in cities and communities that they have little bitty scooter type things. So we'd break up and, you know, lots of days I would go by myself or maybe with two. But we'd always have a point that we'd meet at night. So that strategy is respectful for the people where you are, for the cultures where you're traveling. Yeah. First of all, I won't travel with people that aren't respectful of the local culture. You know, there's a great saying that if you don't eat their food and respect their religion and digest their culture, you should just stay at home. When I pull in or we pull into a small community in Uzbekistan and a family and they feed you out of the kitchen of their home, you do it respectfully because they're doing it respectfully to you. And it's the same way if you're traveling in Idaho in the backcountry or if you're traveling, you know, in Peru. It's, it's the same principle. You really share common life interests when it comes right down to it. And especially if you don't share the language and then you do it through laughter and facial expressions and clapping. Even when there's not a lot of energy when you arrive, you want to leave with a lot of good energy. Hmm. It really does work. Yeah, so the exchange of food is a way to communicate. Well, I think so. You know, gosh, Anthony Bourdain, he shared a lot with us about travel, and he did it through food. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's through food. I think it's through um, sharing expressions. Um, I keep telling people we share common life interests, you know, the basic common life interests. Everybody in the world, they really do share those things. And you really have found that we're more the same than we are different. Yeah, totally. I, I, there's no doubt that we're more the same. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. You pull into a little community someplace, and the first thing they want to do is they want to take a picture with a the motorcycle. They want to take a picture. The kids want to sit on the motorcycle. And I say, you're pretty careful. You make sure nobody can get hurt, nobody can do anything crazy, you know, when they're sitting there. So you're pretty careful. At the same time, they get quite a kick when they have a donkey and you say, hey, can I sit on your donkey with my motorcycle helmet on? I mean, that's that's sharing fun and, and energy. Uh, some of the best times that I've ever had in almost 30 countries around the world with a motorcycle is sharing food and the energy from a table. I mean, we'll literally have dinner with people and in their home and ask them to sit with us. Now, they typically don't know what to do with that, but it's pretty special. You're an honored guest. It goes back to the, the very ancient custom, welcome the guest. It could be an angel or a deity. Yeah, right. I love that notion, and that's maybe a yeah, global hospitality. You welcome the unexpected guest. Yeah, I think so, and I've seen it happen in spades probably happens less in the United States than any place. The more third world or underprivileged an area or country or region is, it almost feels like the more, I don't know, the more they welcome you, the more they're glad to have you. What do you think that is? Yeah, you know, I think it's because they're curious about what's outside their world. And I think to some degree, there's a lot of pride in local cultures. And you know, I can tell you, I've eaten a lot of food that I didn't care for and probably acted pretty excited about 
eating a lot of food I didn't care for, mm -hmm. but it was important for the connection. And I don't want that to sound like it's manipulative. I think it's more along the line, it's respectful. Right. So when you pull into a, a little village, how does this happen? How do you find where you're gonna stay for the night and your meal? <laughs> well, it depends on the uh, how much organization goes into something before you go. Traveling the Silk Road, we had a guy that was basically was a super organizer. So those things were all worked out. You know, he had things really tight for how we'd all stay at night. So mm. that was one thing. And the border crossings, he took uh, care of your border, border crossings. crossings. Yeah, mm -hmm. we did, you know, border crossings were hard. And we had, uh, we'd always have a fixer and always have somebody that would help us. Uh, don't get me wrong, there's some tough ones. Coming into Azerbaijan, they took all my Armenian uh, maps because they were in the process of having a war, a border dispute with Armenia. And I remember arguing with them and saying, if you're going to take that, and took my Lonely Planet book, and I said, if you're going to take that, I want some money. So then they brought the big guy over, the official. And, you know, you don't really hassle border agents, but... Indeed. <laughs> on the other hand, I hassled them quite a bit. And I left without any money, without my Armenian information. You kept your lonely planet? Yeah. No, they took they it took too. too. They took everything wow. that had to do with Armenia. On the other hand, if you're in some place like South America, and we, we traveled from uh, Cartagena, from the Caribbean Ocean, all the way to uh, the Antarctic Ocean, clear down to the very tip at Ushuaia. Mm -hmm. And we had no idea where we were going to stay at night. So we camped, you know, we stayed in hostels. We stayed in really nice hotels in cities like Lima. I really like that level of traveling where you're, you really don't know where you're going to be at night and, it, and you're not really planning along the way. Part of the adventure. Yeah, the I think it is. I think it is. Curiosity is one of your main motivations yeah, yeah, and attributes. Yeah. And if it's open, you get to be really curious what will happen tonight. Right. No, that's exactly right. You know, I tell people all the time that that one of my specific interests, one of the reasons I retired was because I had I have all this curiosity. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't getting it satisfied in some of the areas that I wanted to get it satisfied. So I call it experiencing my curiosity. Yeah. That when I wonder what it would be like to be at summer solstice on the Arctic Circle, you know, that's that's a curiosity that I want to experience. So. Somewhere like going through South America, there's less tension between countries. Crossing borders is easier. You don't have to plan quite as much. Is that the difference between that and, say, the Silk Road? Um, if you think about the trouble spots in the world, mm -hmm. the trouble areas, and like they wouldn't let us into Iran, so we at all. No, well, not at first. Um, mm. They wouldn't let the motorcycles into Iran because they didn't want us just wandering around Iran. But we had visas, so we actually took the bikes back to Baku, stored the motorcycles, got on commercial flights, and flew into Tehran because we were still going to experience Iran. Now, mm -hmm. this was last year, about now. This was at a time when the tensions between the U.S. and Iran were very high, and, and Iran had attacked the oil tankers in the Persian Gulf. And I remember a British uh, a BBC journalist in a hotel lobby said, what do you guys do it here? You're Americans. You shouldn't be here. <laughs> so, well, we're checking out Iran. You know, we met some soldiers, goofed around quite a bit with the soldiers, the Iranian and soldiers. The Iranian soldiers. We went to the uh, Islamic Revolution Museum. I spent a long time in that museum that I was just totally wiped out about what Iran went through, went to the Shah of Iran's palace. You know, that's the stuff I like to do is experience how did these cultures evolve and what did they have to experience to get where they are today? And how do they move forward? I mean, Iran's a perfect example. How do they move forward in the future? What did you learn? I learned that they're a really, really special people. They're unbelievably happy. They were so excited to have Americans there, and they wanted to share their story. They wanted you to see their country. They wanted that's they wanted to share. Uh -huh. And uh, and having the time, you know, we were really just trying to digest Tehran. 
they were wonderful. I mean, we went to a picnic place on a Sunday afternoon, and I'll never forget a group of ladies that they were all just having their kind of picnic in these trees. And next thing we know, they were trying to marry one of us or all of us. And we had more fun with them. Nobody could share the language. Everybody had a blast. It was appropriate fun. Mm -hmm. And they were so excited to have you know, Americans joy. there. Yeah. Iran confuses me because they've gone through a lot, more than most any country in the world. And at the same time, how happy the people are. It's it's pretty incredible. I think they've learned to reach inside and say, you know, we just deal with this stuff. And a resiliency of culture, such an old culture. Yeah. They've developed ways. You know, every time we get a chance to go to, or I get a chance, well, I think we, I mean, typically the guys that I travel with, we want to do this, but we try to go to markets, the local markets. Mm -hmm. They're unbelievable, the, the bazaars. I mean, you can learn a lot. You learn how they live. You learn about the energy. Yeah, they're trying to sell you trinkets. But for the most part, what you're doing is experiencing a way of life. And it's, it's a pretty wonderful way, way of life because for them, because it's all they know. I remember a little town called Horog, and Horog was in Tajikistan, and it's right on the border. In fact, it's the border crossing into Afghanistan. It was not a real developed city or little town, but they had this wonderful, bizarre marketplace that you walk through, and they had tents, and, and that's the way they shopped. Uh, when I could find somebody that could speak English, what an opportunity to find out, you know, how things happened here. The other thing that amazed me is uh, we were in the middle of Ramadan, being a Muslim area in a Muslim country. First of all, in Tajikistan, they were not wearing headscarves. The women weren't. They were really brightly colored dresses, and they were a little closer fitting instead of the loose stuff. This is a society that's starting to open up, and, uh. and you kind of want to go back in five or ten years and say, you know, I wonder to what degree they opened up. They had a, a McDonald's, but it wasn't a real McDonald's, and they spelled McDonald's wrong. It was a knockoff. But they had the golden <laughs> arches and stuff like oh, that. And it was just in this cruddy old building. And I thought, you know, I think it said it all. You know, they really want to evolve from where they are. When you went from um, then into China, you noticed there was a lot of discrimination happening. Oh, yeah. Well, so the Uyghur Muslims in China make up the Western region, and mm -hmm. they still consider it a sovereign region. And uh, when we crossed the border from Kyrgyzstan into China, which was a really hard border crossing, first of all, when we had to leave Kyrgyzstan, it was remote, and it was muddy, it was sloppy. There was only one person working to get out of the country. But coming into China, uh, they had everything backed up, which was another, let's say, 30 or 40 miles away. But you could start feeling the Uyghur Muslims. You could feel their state. And the state really was the fact that the Chinese government or the Communist Party really, they really did put these people through re-education re camps, they called them. We did have to have a handler the whole time we were in China. I think we drove this guy nuts. So you had to be escorted? Yeah, we had to be escorted the entire time. And uh -huh. he had trouble keeping us together and he'd get upset. He told me one time that he was gonna get fired he was going to quit because we kept going places without asking. So they wanted to keep a tight lid on you. Well, they did. They didn't want us wandering around. They wanted to keep us on the main highway. That's not the way that we like to travel, so we mm -hmm. kind of disappear some. Um, you'd see the re-education camps. They were like big prisons, and, and they were huge. If I remember right, there's a million people in these re-education camps. If you take somebody like me that's done quite a bit of research on concentration camps in Germany. 
and you start thinking about a lot of stuff. At the same time, New York Times had a special article while we were there. They had reporters that were actually got a tour of the re-education camps. I asked a lot of questions about the Uyghur Muslims, and, uh, and they wouldn't talk. The Chinese police probably stopped us five or six times a day and checked our paperwork. They had a lot of cameras, surveillance on us. That was uncomfortable for you. To be under uh, that much it scrutiny. was it was really weird. Not yeah. at first it wasn't, but it got to the point that you just thought, boy, at any given point they're going to take us in. Mm. You know, I never experienced that. We went to the old city of Kashgar, and it's a great old city. It was really really important, but there were security cameras, there was surveillance. Every place you went, they had surveillance, mm. and um, so so it's um, harder to experience traditional Chinese culture. Well, you didn't get to. Because that's not traditional Chinese culture. Um, you couldn't even really get to it. Right. Wow. Now, as we moved east, we found traditional Chinese culture and got out of the Muslim ah. population. So if there's huh. 18 million Muslims, Uyghur Muslims, in China, um, they're under a level of scrutiny. I use the word persecution and our escort, who did speak English, he was really against that word. Now, okay. he was Uyghur Muslim. He was also a member of the Communist Party. It's an odd situation. And, and then when you watch, and that was about the time Hong Kong was starting up, and you kind of watch what's going on in Hong Kong. I'm disappointed in China because I've been there a lot, and I love the country. I mean, even when we went in, they took our phones from us when we first crossed the border. And I wouldn't give them my phone and, because they wanted the phones and the passcodes. And I said, well, no, you're not going to get that. They took me into a different room, and they had an English-speaking guy. And it was all tough because he wanted my phone. I've been told they want to put some surveillance device on your phone. But you know what was really interesting? When he asked me what my business was, first I said retired. Well, that wasn't going to get it. I had just retired. And then he kept saying, no, your business. What, did, what is your business? And finally I said, we make French fries for McDonald's. He became my best friend. He understood that, that. He understood that. Okay. You had to use your best negotiation skills. Yeah, I guess so. So China a year ago was more unsettling than it usually is for you. Well, because I'd never been in that region. Now, I can tell you, once we got into um, the eastern provinces, and particularly the, the city of Xi'an, Xi'an's one of the most, the most delightful places on earth, and we actually stayed a few nights there because that's when we had to, you know, load the motorcycles back into shipping containers and stuff like that. So we had some time. We looked around. We, we enjoyed going out in the evening. We enjoyed uh, walking. A couple of times I took off where people live, and I went back into their communities and by myself and felt totally comfortable. And it's a wonderful experience. So there's, there's the China that we can love, and then there's the China that y you're really concerned about, yeah. you know, where it all ends up. So tell us more about the China you love. This is you getting close in yeah. residential <laughs> areas. First of all, they're, again, very welcoming. They, they love seeing people. Mm -hmm. um, when you walk through... Um, not the more touristy areas of the downtown or the, uh, you know, the bright lights of these big Chinese cities. And you go back into where they live and, and the kids are playing in the streets. These people really, again, have the same hopes, dreams, and aspirations of mm -hmm. most all human beings in the world. They look at you like, what's this guy doing here, you know, and they know that you're European or South African or American. You know, when you try to engage with in that area, they're a little like suspicious. Why are you here? What are you doing? When you can connect beyond their suspicions of why you're in their neighborhood, it's pretty wonderful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've got, I'm not saying I'm a photographer, but I take lots of pictures. And I'd like to think that I'm getting better at it, but I take lots of people pictures. And when I get done with a trip, I go, everybody else has pictures of mountains and all this really cool stuff. I have pictures of people, and those pictures of people bring back lots of important memories to me, and they bring back lots of important um, learnings and experiences. 
Can we say that you go for the people? That's a big part of your motivation then. Yeah, I think so. You know, I remember the first time that I went to uh, South America on the motorcycle. And uh, I traveled uh, with the Dakar, the big Dakar race. It was a big trip to follow the, the Dakar. And I, and I thought I was going for the race. And I remember what I really came back was um, it was about the people and the energy and uh, the experiences that I had with all these Latin people with this race being in their community. Mm. I remember a lady handed me a newborn baby and it was in the mountains of Chile and she just hands me this baby and I'm going, what is this? What's gonna happen here? All that she wanted was a picture of the baby with me. And it's, it's a memory. You know, it's something mm-hmm. special. You got to hold that baby. Yeah, she mm-hmm. just wanted a picture. Every area is different, but I will say the Latin people are probably the, the energy. Oh, so interesting story. We're on the Iranian border. I'm thinking, boy, would this be really, really cool to go down and get a picture of on the other side of Iran, on the other side of the uh, the sea. I thought it'd be really cool to get a picture at the border crossing with a couple of the guards just for fun. Anyway, I decided not to, and there were three or four of us together, and we couldn't find a place to have lunch. And all of a sudden, I see this all these semis parked outside waiting to get into the border crossing to Iran. You know, we had just crossed the Caspian. We, you know, on a ferry, we were hungry. There were like four or five ladies, and we made the motion that we needed something to eat. Next thing we know, they are climbing all over our motorcycles, and they literally had a party. They called their friends, and they all came. We created this stir of a couple of dozen ladies. Did they bring you food? Yeah, and they brought food, and we had food and Cokes and stuff like that. The odd part of all the truck drivers were standing around going, what are these guys doing with our, you know, I mean, that's the way you felt. What are these guys doing? These are our ladies, and oh. and so we kind of packed up and left. Mm-hmm. Could have been some tension. Maybe. Some no. of the best meals are the ones by the road. Oh, or- I love that, Yeah. Someone set up a grill or they've right. got their fire pit and you stop and you get an amazing meal, unexpected. Right. Uh, gosh, if, if anybody wants to go eat really good food, go to Mexico and just travel down to Las Mochas or someplace like that. And the food along the side of the roads as good as it gets. And it's usually a family. It's a husband and wife and a couple of kids. Everybody works. Uh, you kind of check out to see, you know, that if everything's clean and they, they really do cook the meat and it's really the right kind of meat and mm-hmm. the whole deal. So a well-traveled road in somewhere like Mexico will have these places to stop and pe- families where you can Yeah, just, mm-hmm. yeah, and sometimes they don't even have to be well-traveled, you know. Oh. the um, But I remember in uh, northern Peru where we got to pick our guinea pigs and they were still alive and they they say for empanadas. They tell you to pick out your guinea pig, and a few minutes later, they come out, and that, that's what you ate. Yeah. What's one of the most unusual things you've eaten that? Guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, um, I, well, I, I guess I've had bone meal. I have eaten an, an eyeball. I acted like it was no big deal. It was a really big deal. It was beyond anything that, I mean, but I did it, you know. Mm-hmm. I made sure that everybody watching me thought, boy, Bill, that didn't bother him at all. I can tell you, it bothered me a lot. <laughs> yeah. I was with a really good friend of mine, and we're in Mongolia. She was supposed to go up and cut the uh, the hog, and it was some kind of a ceremony. Mm-hmm. And it was in a yurt, and she was supposed to, to take the first cut and so on and so forth. She also had to... Uh, have a couple of drinks on the way, and she was determined not to drink. So I told the host, Debbie really doesn't drink, and this puts her in a really difficult position, so on and so forth. So they said, well, somebody has to take the drinks. So our interpreter actually said that she would take the drinks. But, you know, here's what's really interesting. When they served you the food, there were no washrooms. There was no sanitary anything. There were no soap. 
the restrooms were literally behind the yurt, out in the open. When they served you the food, they picked it up with their hands and put it on your plate. And I remember, I'll never forget Debbie looking at me going, oh my God, what am I going to do? Totally different notion and, of sanitation. Uh, we t- yeah. Yeah. yeah, but you were fine. You didn't get sick. You were, you, no, your immune no, system no. was up I, for it. No, yeah, that's, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow your immune system gets tra- trained along the way. Well, you do. No, you get, yeah, mm-hmm. you, you, you really do. Tell us about going through Africa. Well, I haven't been yet. So I was, I'm supposed to go January... Okay. This coming January. And so that's my uh, last major continent. So Hasn't been done yet. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of my final cross-continent. So mm-hmm. I've done South mm-hmm. America and Asia. Um, Europe will be pretty easy to do. I've done mm-hmm. Australia. I absolutely am looking forward to oh, Africa. Yeah. So we've actually delayed it a little bit to February. So... February 2021, we'll be Africa, and we'll start in Cape Town and end up in Cairo. I'm just curious, do you ever pull into a village? And I, I hear that you get food in all kinds of unique ways. Sometimes you stay in people's homes. Yeah. How does that work? Do they invite you? Do you ask? Well, yeah, they will invite you, and they'll provide you know some level of, you know they would like to have the few dollars income. This actually didn't happen to me, but it happened to one of the guys we were with where they actually had the neighbors all bring their mattresses in, in their living area. So everybody would have a place to lay on them. But I've stayed in um, the difference between some of these places that are called hostels and homes are, there's not much difference. Okay. There's a place in Batapias, Mexico, and the lady's name's Juanita. You can't store your, your motorcycle outside because this is cartel country, and you literally have to make sure that you, you just don't leave things out. So we rolled the motorcycles through the living room of the house and put them on the Great. back patio area. And she's wonderful, but we literally rode, pushed, what well, kind of rode and pushed the motorcycles through her living room. Mm-hmm. And, and I've done it three times. I've been at her place three times. And, and then you stayed with her. Yeah, I stayed mm-hmm. right there in her place in some level of a hostel. You know, this is an ancient way of traveling. You know, as you know, I'm a student of, of Henry David Thoreau. And yeah. when he would travel, you would just start canvassing the neighborhood when you would arrive in a town. And you would see who would put you up. You right. would sleep in their home. And then you would leave money on the table when you left in the morning. <laughs> You're in a lineage. That's sort of yeah, what you do sometimes. Like, sometimes it happens that way. You know, I was pretty interested in the hostel world. Sometimes people look at me and say, why would you stay in a hostel? Well, because you meet the most interesting people. And you know who some of the most interesting people are? Are the proprietors. Ah, yes. And Mm -hmm. you'd be surprised if you get them where they can sit and talk with you, the stories they have. You'd also be surprised some of the people you run across in a hostel. And you also sometimes don't sleep real well, so... I had a hostel proprietor in, in Greece once at the base of Mount Olympus. He took me out swimming in the sea, and then he took me to this really nice restaurant. I mean, he showed me kind of the local treasures. Right. Because they didn't get very many Americans. Yeah. Bolivia. It is cold. It's windy. We're riding in sand where the sand had blown in on the mm-hmm. roads, and we're really high elevation. Let's just say that we're probably at 12, 13, 14,000. We had no idea where we were going to stay that night, and it's getting, let's just say, 4 or 5 o'clock. Uh, we're starting to wonder, are we going to have to camp in this wind? Uh, and we were prepared to. We can. Um, so you always have your tent. Yeah, I always had tents. No matter what, Absolutely. there's a tent. Yeah. Okay. We come around a corner, we see some buildings, and uh, and so we pull up to the building, and it was, I mean, it could have been a cow barn. It could have been, I mean, we didn't know what it was, and asked them about staying there, and they said, sure. We don't know if we have room for you, but we put eight of us in a room. Uh, that's probably too many. Anyway, six or eight of us in a room, I'm not sure. I think there were 10 or 12 of us traveling together at this point. But we ran across this family, and it was a husband, wife on bicycles with a four-year-old. In this wind, in this In this cold. wind. And wow. this is the toughest little kid that's ever been on the face of the earth. <laughs> and we were carrying, because we were on motorcycles, we had food, mm. and we fed them at night. 
-hmm. We fed them the next morning. We gave them a whole lot of extra food. And then there was another couple that showed up on bicycles. I don't see how they could possibly do it. And, Not, and you were at high elevation as right, well. Right, high elevation. Uh -huh. And, and I've bicycle. actually kept in touch with her over the years. Well, this has been four years ago uh, when we did this. But what an experience. All these people just kind of crammed into two rooms. And there was six or eight of us in one room and there were there were people sleeping in the hall but it was it couldn't have been better and then we found a hot spring so this was exhilarating for you yes i absolutely love that the energy for those things you talk fantastic. to people you yeah. enjoy it you soak it up it's not an inconvenience yeah. <laughs> right. it's not annoying you love that yeah i do i do and, and you know renee but we can get it right here i mean i love it here in idaho sure. to, to get to have those type of experiences. You know, I can pull into Elk City, Idaho, and probably have as much fun with the lady that owns the Elk City Hotel. Uh, and she is, she's spectacular. And she is so appreciative of people stopping by. And, and I hope that she gets to have some level of traffic. But it's a double-edged sword right now because, you know, as people come by, they're bound to bring some level of contamination. Mm -hmm. It may be very, very remote. I don't know. Yeah. But at the same time, they need people to come by and they need to make a living. And, and what we have to do when we go to these little communities like Elk City, as an example, is be really respectful of their, uh, the sensitivities that they have to having no medical care. What you're teaching me today, I've always seen what you do is what you're receiving and how you're benefiting from these trips you do. And what I'm seeing today is that there's an exchange, that um, you give back as much as possible to the communities, mm. whether it's a conversation, a smile, some actual food, some money on the table. It's an exchange for you. Yeah, it, it is for me. It has to be pretty mutual. Mm -hmm. and, and even if it's lopsided, I want it to be lopsided on the point that I'm giving some level mm -hmm. of appreciation and respect that I possibly can. And I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm a long way from being done with doing this and experiencing this. It, it's really, really important. You know, I mean, here's the thing. You kind of go through life and you do some things that are fun and exciting and interesting. You have a passion for your work, which I do. You have a passion for your family. And at the same time, you have this, I always tell people that I'm not an expert rider on my motorcycle, but I ride expert things. I'm not an expert photographer, but I try to pursue some level of expertise with my photography. Whatever it is, the thing that I really don't want to miss is the ability to connect to other people. And none of us have to be an expert at that. It's really just a simple acknowledgement mm -hmm. that we're all in this together. And there's something about the fact that whether it was 9-11, whether it was the virus, maybe World War II, when we're all in it together and we can truly feel that way and f truly feel that there's no discrimination, but it's still there. I mean, and we just have to keep pursuing the fact that we're we're just all pursuing life, no matter where we are. There are ways to connect with anyone. Yeah, yeah. Anyone. You want to tell us a little bit about Crush the Curve? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, it's an important initiative. My wife and I, Joan, we were in uh, New Zealand, and actually I was touring on motorcycle through North and South Island, and she was actually backpacking. She was going and doing her thing and um, we kept hearing a little bit about the virus coming to the U.S. And in March, the first couple of weeks of March, and she came on back and I had to get the motorcycle back, had some logistical things to do. But when we got back, I had a couple of conversations with some friends of mine relative to the virus situation. And then all of a sudden I realized that offices were emptying out, factories were closing down, you know, restaurants. Here I was in New Zealand, you know, literally having this idyllic type of experience. And a week later, you know, here we are. So a few of us, very few, got together and formed Crush the Curve, which was a business, for lack of a better term, I never really liked the term executive, but business executive-led initiative 
to access PPE and testing materials and come together with plans and, and activities uh, to support businesses. And we went, it was like a Manhattan project and uh, it was night and day, the, the texting, we never met in the same room. It was all done with Zoom or mainly texting. Mm -hmm. Even last night, I'm laying in bed texting. We were still texting probably goofy stuff at 11 o'clock at night, but it was important mm -hmm. goofy stuff. Mm -hmm. Because the goal is really to get Idaho back to work and get Idaho back to work safely and keep Idaho back to work safely. And um, we've been testing. We've been doing a lot of antibody testing uh, so we can kind of get a baseline and understand what's, what the virus is doing. At the same time, we do a lot of uh, live virus testing and so we can tell you know, where it is. So we move in quickly and address uh, hot spots. We've done quite a few now. And it's beyond just determining the live virus. It's also making sure that we can isolate and trace and do it very, very quickly. Uh, we do it in collaboration with the state and, uh, and also with like St. Luke's. Uh, so I'm on the St. Luke's Hospital System Board. I'm also working closely with them. I think I've become obsessed with the opportunities to manage this virus. Oh. And, and it's really about Idaho, but taking learnings. I'm not an epidemiologist. It's kind of one of those things. I have no skills, but I have this obsession for trying to help do something about it. And I think our whole Crush the Curve board uh, has that same obsession. I'm watching this small board of six of us and with our executive director, Tina Epson, literally um, commit all their time to making this contribution. And it's, I think it's working. It's about connecting. You're taking yeah. this platform, connecting testing to where it's needed within communities, within the medical system, right. leveraging your capacity for connecting to bring together different entities that, that need to see each other I or think need so. to be together. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and not everybody has the same connect point. I mean, you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of initiatives trying to do the right thing. Yeah. All that I know is when you look at a building and you know there was 800 people in that building and now it's empty in downtown Boise as an example. That's a pretty personal situation for everybody. Yeah. It should be for our community. It is for me. On a personal basis, if you take a um, food factory that people work in very close proximity to each other and they really haven't had all the guidance. This yeah. is new to everybody yeah. and the guidance hasn't been there. And then if there is a hot spot, connecting all the dots and saying, you know, hey, this is what needs to happen. Let's do it. And it's pretty important. But not everybody, everybody has a little bit different, you know, should we only test symptomatics? Should we not test anybody that doesn't have symptoms? We then don't have testing capacity. You're navigating a lot of well, different Well, maybe, yeah, here. I think so. And you're Renee, it's, it's kind of one of those things. If, if we let the limitations of our own systems, that we built these systems in fairly safe conditions. And if we let those limitations manage how we manage the virus, it's going to be a real struggle for us. We're not going to get very far. So we've got to bust through some of that so stuff. So let's go back to if something's wrong, find the opportunity, find the way through it, find the way to navigate it, to connect it, to fix it. You're right. taking like your whole life of the negotiator and the connector and the guy who sees things differently and can find a solution and you're bringing it to the table right now. Well, yeah, I never thought can. about that. Maybe, and I think maybe <laughs> that might be. Uh, the one thing that I've always had people around me that inspire me and that, that help me be driven. And it's people that have experience or expertise or technical abilities that, you know, that I didn't have right. or I don't have. Right. So maybe I just like to connect the dots yeah. to the best of my ability. That's important. Yeah. I value that. Well, I, mm -hmm. it is for me. It's kind of the way that I've done it all the right. time. So anything to close up you'd like to hmm. tell us about? Yeah, there kind of is because I'm really proud of McCall. 
McCall's doing it right. Mm. And, uh, and I know the first time that you and I talked about this, Renee, would probably be the middle of March. We were kind of all looking at each other going, where's this going to go? What's going to happen? How's this going to, you know, because McCall's, we get to see what happened in Blaine County and the Ketchum Haley Sun Valley area and how you know what a terrible challenge is I mean actually it's been devastating and yeah. and um, then you watch McCall and and I really admire the way McCall's done it right and and I really admire the sensitivity that people when they live in McCall they're so proud of their community I'm proud of this community I brag on it all the time May Hardware is probably my favorite place to go you know shopping right and and i and i just think it's kind of cool the how careful they are and how safe yeah. they are i got my hair cut this morning with joe whalen and the way they have everything wiped down you don't get to come into the salon and sit around and this is really cool that and i told jill how you know how wonderful this is that you guys are just doing it right mm -hmm. the pancake house okay i love eating breakfast there but uh they're doing it right Listen, doesn't make us any, I mean, we're still vulnerable to lots of people coming in and lots of people that think, boy, Idaho's really in good shape compared to maybe where I'm coming from. And there's a point that we kind of have to remind people, we're just going to have to be really aware. There's two things that can really fix us and make sure we stay safe, and that's distance and distance. And, and you and I are sitting here six foot apart, maybe uh -huh. eight foot apart. So. Uh -huh. so respect and consensus is what you're seeing in town. It's an amazing community, and everybody's come together. And, I, you know, just the other day, uh, Dan Cron called and wanted to know about getting a load of fresh potatoes in a pickup. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, maybe. And next thing I know, Garrett Lofto, who's the took my job at Simplot as CEO, I talked to Garrett about, I said, hey, is there any chance we could probably use some, you know, stuff for the food bank? He sends a semi-load of frozen potatoes and frozen food products, a semi-load. And it was, it was only like it. a week or 10 days ago. And he didn't send a pickup load, he sent a, a semi-load. Semi. Welcome to Idaho. <laughs> and that's the way it works. That's McCall's a special, that's a special place. I feel it. I feel your love and respect for this place. Thanks for being here today, bringing you to the conversation. So crushthecurve.com? Yeah, crushthecurveidaho.com. Okay. And, and go check the website, and you, there's, there'll be some statistics on there. Okay. There's a couple of case studies that are new that we can show where, um, where there's been hot spots, and we've moved in and addressed with testing. And what we have to do is make sure tracing comes along quickly, and the state's doing that. We are really busy. The hot spot could come to McCall. It could be here. It's probably good to plan for it, so and we're, so we're we just, ready. So let's just be ready. Yeah. Well, thanks for, thanks for everything you're doing for our communities. Oh, thanks. I'm Renee Silvis with Spotlight McCall. We're co-sponsored by Community Hub McCall, cubmccall.com. You can read more about Bill's initiative at crushthecurveidaho.com. Thanks for being here. Now go out and find some inspiration.